Welcome to Banjo Strings and Drinking Gourds, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex. And I'm Rachel. Today we're talking about the 18th century. This is a follow-up podcast of the 17th century that we did a few weeks back. Now, I am a bit confused as to why we're doing this, as after the 17th century, we both agreed we need to narrow the focus on our topics a bit more and not have such broad, complex, and nuanced timeframes to digest in 40 minutes. The good news, Rachel, considering this podcast as a prologue into the 18th century, we will be doing many more episodes on the 18th century in the not-too-distant future. Oh, goody. The 18th century is a pivotal century for the future United States, and we're leading up to really what is going to be some podcasts on the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War. Yes, and I can see that we're also going to have to do a podcast on the rights of slavery in the 18th century among the English colonies, and looking at the 18th century through the prism of American Indians, focusing on certain groups, in particular Virginian Indians like the Sioux speakers in the Piedmont region. I can also see us doing a podcast on sugar and the English colonies of Jamaica and Barbados. And I'm sure you've thought of quite a few more possible topics, but really, let's just get started on this podcast. Yes, and the first topic to discuss is, when is the 18th century? Something that should be easy to answer. So, Rachel, what years comprise the 18th century? The answer is from 1700 to 1799, yet the way you phrase that makes me think you're thinking of a trick question. Did they add extra years when they changed the calendar in 1752? No, you were right on the dates, except many historians refer to the long 18th century, especially British historians, because one could argue that the start of the 18th century begins in 1689 when William and Mary accept the English crown. This begins a series of wars between Britain and France that last all the way to the end of the Napoleonic Wars at Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo in 1815, a second hundred-plus-year conflict that was fought all over Europe and eventually the world. Okay, in order to keep us on track and to give a good overview of the 18th century, I have a series of questions that we're going to attempt to answer. To help us with this task, we have a special guest, Mark, the museum expert on the Spanish and French empires and colonial Virginia. Welcome back to the podcast, Mark. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me again. Let's get started unraveling the complicated and fascinating century. So the first question, and really it's a softball question, English or British? The answer is British. In 1707, the independent countries of England and Scotland agreed to the Act of Union, forming the Kingdom of Great Britain. So from 1707 onwards, it is the British Empire. The king is a British king, and anyone from Great Britain can call themselves British. This does a couple of things. Neither country really wanted to do this, but for England, it secures the northern border for England and reaffirms the Georgian accession to the throne. And for Scotland, it brings them into the English trading network. And in the long run, this is a success for both countries. The flag of Great Britain becomes the Union Jack, the flag of the United Kingdom to this day. Well, sort of. Because the flag that's created in 1707 is just the mixing of the crosses St. George and the crosses St. Andrew, Scotland and England's flag. In 1802, they're going to add the cross of St. Patrick, which is the flag of Ireland. And that's the flag that we tend to see today when we talk about Great Britain. So the most appropriate terminology is the Union flag, not the Union Jack. It's the Union Jack when it's at sea. All right. Well, thank you, everyone. The next question, is Britain an empire in the early 18th century? Yes, and here are the reasons why. Um, in, throughout the 17th century, there are a series of events that take place that make Britain become an empire 
as at the turn of the century. The first of is the Navigation Acts passed in the 1650s when England was a republic, the conquest of Jamaica in 1656. Again, this is when Oliver Cromwell is Lord Protector. The increase of bulk manufacturing and standardized in goods that are becoming more and more common as the century goes on. Cotton that is coming from India into Britain. Sugar from the Caribbean also going into Britain. Tobacco from Virginia, spices from India, and tea from China. Also coffee from the Mideast. And Britain is slowly going to take over control of the slave trade in the 18th century. And sadly, this is going to result in an increase in enslaved labor in all of their colonies. The, all of these events make Britain very powerful and rich. It's all part of an economic condition called mercantilism, where you try to control all aspects of the trade between your countries. I would say that mercantilism is a process where the colonies are producing raw materials and that they can only sell those raw materials back to their parent country. In this case, it would be the 13 colonies, Jamaica, Barbados, um, and all of those goods can only be sold to England where they're turned into manufactured goods. And then those manufactured goods are either sold back to the colonists or sold to folks on the continent of Europe for an increased value, making England richer and richer as time goes on. Now, still missing from this is going to be important for Great Britain cementing its position as an empire is the series of wars it's going to be fighting in the 18th century. Uh, Britain was a winner of several of these different uh, conflicts, and specifically for their both uh, increasing the power of their army and their navy, and it's going to become the, one of the more dominant powers in Europe. In particular, the Navy is really going to see an increase, and this is going to be the first time since the Hundred Years' War in the 14th and 15th century that the English Army is going to be defeating continental powers. Now, in the early part of this, the two wars that are really the most important are going to be the War of the Grand Alliance and the War of Spanish Succession. Uh, the War of Grand Alliance is really the start of the 18th century's attempts to who's going to be the most powerful country in Europe, and the answer at this moment is France. France is the most powerful country, and the War of the Grand Alliance is basically a series of countries aligned together to curtail French power and expansion on the continent. In addition to that conflict, there's going to be a few other little conflicts kind of as an aside to it that Great Britain is taking uh, pardon. The first is with the coming of William and Mary to the throne of England and the end of the uh, Stuarts, the 17th century royal family running England and Great Britain. And that's going to lead to a rebellion in Scotland. The Stuarts were originally a Scottish family that had taken over after the end of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. And Scotland rebelled because they still wanted to have the Jacobite, the Stuart monarchy. But that was a rebellion that was quickly put down. The second and more serious challenge was when the Stuart King, um, James II, tried to retain control of Ireland. And James and William are going to be fighting for a number of years, going from about 1689 to about 1691, over control of Ireland. The thing that's going to be pulling English attention away during this period is the War of the Grand Alliance and... William, who's also the Duke of Orange, the Netherlands, 
needs to get back to fight against the French trying to push into the Low Countries in the Netherlands. That will uh, uh, end with Holland retaining its independence, but with some of the old Spanish French uh, Low Country territories falling into French possession. That war ends, though, mostly as a draw, as all the different powers just exhaust themselves. And what no one really expected was that very shortly thereafter, another great war was going to start, the War of Spanish Succession. The Spanish Habsburgs finally die off with no heirs, and the King of France wants to put one of his family members in charge of uh, Spain. Unfortunately, the Austrian Habsburgs do not want this, and they continue to fight a war back and forth against each other. England is going to join Austria in trying to stop the French from gaining control of Spain. The 1704, the Battle of Blemhein, is going to be the first defeat of the French army by the British army since the end of the Hundred Years' War. So it's going to be a major turning point for the British army. This war is going to result in massive gains for the British Navy. It's going to see a decline of the Dutch Navy, and it's going to see the French and the Spanish combined navies finding themselves in a disadvantaged position going forward. And England's eventually, Great Britain's going to eventually have twice as big a navy as both France and Spain combined. The other big thing that comes out of this, even though Britain loses, is they will gain access and control of the transatlantic slave trade for the Spanish Empire. This is all very interesting, but how do you pay for all these wars and building up the Royal Navy? England had no standing army or much of a navy just 100 years before. The biggest change was a financial revolution that occurred after 1689, basically to pay for all the wars. This included... Um, a way of how they started taxing. This is when the window tax comes into place, a land tax, an excise tax. Um, it also is a willingness among the government to pay debts. This is a very progressive thought. A lot of times it was always a risk if you borrowed money to a king because you never knew if it was ever going to be paid back or not. Annuities were backed by taxes. State lotteries were existing to help fund um, some of this warfare. And in 1694, the Bank of England is established to control all this debt. Um, one of the other things is loans are guaranteed by the Bank of England. And one of the other strange benefits of this is a huge expanded civil service to finance and run the war. Parliament improves the subsidies to run the government and consequently has met every year from 1688, 1689 onwards. Um, and also, this is where, this is when the crown loses control of public funding. These change results in what many historians have argued is the beginning of a very modern state. The ability to raise huge sums of money as compared to France and Spain is the key factor in the success of the British Empire in the 18th century. Now that we have clearly established Britain does indeed have an empire, what is the situation for Spain and France? All right, so let's start by talking about the Spanish Empire. The Spanish Empire at the very beginning of the 17th century is at its high watermark. We're looking at Spain having conquered huge territories all through the New World, and through marriages have also gained control of not just Spain, but also Austria, and through them, the Holy Roman Empire. 
But Spain's colonies begin to slow down as they begin to expand beyond their ability to control the territories they've conquered. As a result, a city that's today called Santa Fe is going to be established in about 1610. That's about almost at the same time as the Virginia colony is being started in 1607, or the French colony in Quebec is being started in 1608. As a result, that's about the high watermark for what we're looking at with the Spanish colonial empire. And most of Spain's efforts in the New World from this point forward are just going to be trying to either fill out the territory they've already conquered or very slowly uh, add new territories such as what's going to happen in California. But through all of this, more and more territory is going to be taken away from Spain by the British and the French empires. As we mentioned earlier during Cromwell's rule, Jamaica and some of the islands of the Caribbean are going to fall away from Spain into British possession. And that's going to really see a decline of Spain's colonial fortunes. The other thing that happens to Spain is when they came to the New World, the Inca, the Maya, and the Aztec, the major Indian Mesoamerican empires, were conquered, and they were very, very rich. Spain has been sending shipments of gold twice a year for almost 150 years back to Europe. And they have finally brought so much gold and silver from the New World into the Old World that they have devalued gold. The Spanish also don't understand about inflation, so all of these things are coming together at the same time, and it is crippling Spain's economy. Now, Spain has also neglected their home territories. And so the type of farming and the type of production that Spain had in the 1400s before it became an empire are still very, very similar to what they're producing in the 1800s. And so the production of all of Spain has stagnated and slowed, and the rest of Europe is continuing to progress. So that's Spain. France, on the other hand, is an ascendant power. It has the largest population in Europe at the time, and while Spain's has become pretty stagnant, France's is still growing, but not at the same rate as England or even the German states' populations will begin to grow and recover. So they don't have as many people to be sending over to the New World. But as they start sending folks over, France is going to be trying to set up colonies, just like England, just like Spain, just like Portugal. But the territory that France is going to get access to is nowhere near as valuable as the gold produced in the Mesoamericas or the sugar that's being produced in the Caribbean. So France's early colonial attempts are going to center on what today is Canada and Arcadia. That's going to be the fur trade, and that's going to be a slow-growing empire, which probably never sees more than maybe 18,000 French in the colony at any time in New France. Now, it's going to be a big colony, especially if you look at French maps of the period, where they're going to have almost from the Atlantic coast of Canada and Nova Scotia, across and then down the Mississippi River. And at the very beginning of the 1700s, they'll have set up New Orleans at the 
southern part of the Mississippi River Valley, splitting the Spanish territory of Florida from the Spanish territory of New Spain, which is today parts of Texas and, and going down into Mexico. And then from there, pushing north and west across the continent. So that's what we're looking at for France. And they have a lot of territory. They're also going to be able to pick up a couple of the smaller islands in the Caribbean, the Windward Islands, along with the Dutch and the English. And eventually, the island of Hispaniola, Spain's first colonial uh, discovery, will be split in two. And that split still exists on the island today, with the French part of the island being the uh, nation of Haiti today, where the Spanish part of the island is going to be also on Hispaniola. So that's what we're looking at for the birth of the French colonial empire. And of course, while France is doing this, they're also trying to maintain their strong position on the continent and will be constantly butting heads with their European neighbors all through the 18th century, fighting a series of wars, both colonial and continental, culminating at the end of the century with wars spanning the world. Now let's take a look at the British colonies in North America. And one, taking it as a whole, the population of the colonies was 260,000. And anytime you see a number, take it with a grain of salt because the numbers aren't accurate and they do change and it depends which history book you read and what numbers they are actually quoting. Um, but what is surprising is how some of the colonies really don't have any people in it whatsoever. And I always compare it to Stanton, which is a population of 25,000, and most of the colonies don't even have 25,000 people. If you look at South Carolina and North Carolina, they are colonies that were established, well, South Carolina was established by the Barbados um, in the 1670s. There's probably under 25,000 people in those colonies, British people in those colonies at this time. Um, if you look up and go north into New England, there is a big debate on how many people came to the New England colonies during the 17th century. You have the low figure being about 30,000, and you have, I've read one figure as high as 72,000. But the numbers of people in the colonies at the turn of the century, Massachusetts is the biggest, which also includes Maine at this time, and it also includes Plymouth, has a population of about 60,000 to 70,000. Connecticut has a population of about 29,000 to 30,000. Rhode Island is very tiny. You hear a lot about Rhode Island, but the population is only about five to 6,000 people. New Hampshire is also a colony, and its population is only about four to 5,000 people. Um, and I'll have Mark talk about New York and Pennsylvania. So New York is an entirely different story for its population because it's a Dutch colony originally. So they are coming over in an entirely different system from the English. It's called the patroonship system, where basically it's a quasi-feudal system. So you're looking at a much smaller population there, with the exception of New York City um, eventually becoming a very, very large city. It'll be the second largest city in the colonies during the colonial period, followed um, only by the largest city being Philadelphia. Now, Virginia, on the other hand, is an interesting case 
because we're looking at uh, Virginia being the first colony, and we're talking about folks mostly coming over as indentured servants. Uh, the majority of those indentured servants are going to go to Virginia, about 120,000, of which about 80,000 were indentures. And about 30,000 or so folks coming to Virginia were paid colonists. We will also see about eh, half of those indentures also making their way into the British Caribbean. Now, by 1700, we're looking for Virginia's population probably being about 85,000 uh, folks. And of those, about 2,000 or so are going to be enslaved Africans. That number is going to be exploding in the 18th century, where you're going to be seeing that by the end of the century, you're going to be having not quite half of the population probably being enslaved Africans, probably about 40% being in, in either enslaved Africans or free blacks. Now, Virginia is also going to be mostly just the tidewater, the coastal part of Virginia in this period. When they are talking about moving the capital away from Jamestown, they're trying to try to put it in the middle of the colony, which means just moving it to the center of the Middle Peninsula today to the city town of, now it's called Williamsburg, and it's going to be named after King William, and that's going to be in 1699. They're also having a problem getting folks such as lawyers and ministers into the colony, which is why they were also establishing the College of William and Mary in Virginia, which will become the second university here in the colonies, the first being Harvard up in New England. I will tell you that people who go to Yale will argue very strongly that Yale beat William and Mary by one year. Yep, and nobody else believes them. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on the Yale side, everyone. <laughs> so that is what we're looking at here for the entirety of the populations coming over here into the 18th century, at least the beginning of the 18th century. Now, we, we always talk a lot about numbers. The, in, the only interesting number um, when it comes to looking at the English colonies at the turn of the century is the number of people who are not coming from England. We know 400,000 people left England in the 17th century. Um, going up to the Revolutionary War, the number is 80,000 people leaving from England to come emigrate into their colonies. But that's a tricky figure because a lot of historians will say 50,000 of that 80,000 were convicts. The British are basically emptying out their jails and giving them an option to go to their colonies. So really only 30,000 people are leaving England in the 18th century. The main reason of this, England is becoming more powerful. As England becomes more powerful, the standard of living is actually going up in England and very few people are going to experience those push factors to actually want to leave England. So that is very critical. And that is one of the reasons why, and this is another story of the 18th century, why they start looking for settlers from other places besides England. And this will include Ireland and Germany. The next thing is the population in the 18th century is going to explode in the English colonies. It will double every 25 years for the next 100 years. That is a huge increase, and if we kept going by that number, our population would be well over 400 million, probably possibly hitting 500 million if we hadn't, if we kept that figure up to the present day time. All right, so we've talked about all of the peoples that came into the colony. So let's for a moment talk about the Native Americans. Let's talk about the Indian population. 
and we talked about in the 17th century, there are still pockets of Indian groups living all along the East Coast in what we now think of as the British 13 colonies. With a couple of notable exceptions, by the 18th century, policy is going to start being to move those Indian groups out west. That's going to include moving them into places like Ohio, and in the case of the uh, French colonies, some of the Indian groups that will be pushed out by the Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, and the British will end up living in the western part of the Great Lakes. Some of the groups, like the Delaware Indians, will actually end up in Ohio. And so that's going to be a bit of movement. Now, the Virginia Indians, the Powhatan Indians, are going to be an exception to that because they ended up signing their treaties in the middle of the 17th century. So there are going to be Powhatan, essentially what we would consider reservations for the Powhatan Indians in Virginia. And there are still six tribes of the Powhatan Nation living in Virginia today because of the treaties and the setup of the 17th century versus British Indian policy of the 18th century. Now, we have a good snapshot of the British Empire and the North American colonies at the turn of the century. We've teased everyone that populations of the colonies were going to explode. Is this the reason the colonies are expanding west, or is there more to it? The answer to that is yes and no. Yes, the populations are expanding, and yes, people do need land since most people are farmers. The part where it's no is the colonies are run from London by the Board of Trade, the organization that is developed to oversee the colonies, and they become a little concerned about the French. And one of the ways we can easily show this is a French-drawn map done in 1718. It is of the future United States. And in it, um, you can clearly see the Mississippi River. They have it as the center. The map isn't really drawn to scale or pretty accurate, but it is pretty good. But the thing that stands out is that the French part is featured prominently, it's in the center, and it looks like there are more French people than there actually are. And the British part of this map is just a little bit along the coast, you know, from Carolina all the way up to really Maine. So if you were looking at this map, Mark, who would you say would be the most dominant and most numerous people on the continent? The map is really trying to show that the French are the ascendant dominant power that have a large population right in the middle of the continent, controlling both the headwaters and the springwaters of the Mississippi River, and therefore are going to be able to prevent the British from expanding any further west. Um, the territory on this map really does it undersell how much territory and land the English actually were controlling in the 17th century. And it doesn't really show well the empty spaces that exist between the Mississippi River Valley into the Ohio River Valley. France is just, its name's just all the way across it, kind of leading to the assumption that all that territory is French. The English, of course, disagree with that. And so to make the English feel better right away, they do a map, which again is of the future United States. Again, it's not a very accurate map, but the thing that is very prominent on this map is the English colonies are dead center and are very filled out, and the French part is not. Yes, looking at this map, um, the scale is a little bit off. It looks like Nova Scotia is almost as big as Texas on this map. Uh, but 
it does show a much more prominent English and British colonial expansion and showing it as a much more densely populated section while the rest is still being shown as being fairly empty. Now, why that is important and um, is that the Board of Trade starts looking at the English colonies in North America as a coherent unit. And they become very concerned that the French might attack from the West, which they consider the weak door or the weak back door of the colonies. Um, so they start making suggestions for all the colonies to start settling West. One of the things Virginia does, Alexander Spotswood is the governor, is he leads an expedition over the Blue Ridge Mountains to see if you actually can get over the Blue Ridge Mountains. This is kind of funny because there's lots of people who have been over the Blue Ridge Mountains and peaked and seen what's on the other side. But because it's the governor and a lot of the leading figures of Virginia, it receives a lot of attention. And there's a little bit of mystery where they went over. A lot of people think it's around Spotsylvania. And they head to the Shenandoah River, which they notice is flowing north. They call it the Euphrates. And... All of a sudden, there's a brief thought that perhaps that river flows into the Great Lakes and that it might be very easy for the French to sail down and completely cross over the Blue Ridge Mountain. This kind of plays into one of the Virginians' longest-held dreams, the Northwest Passage. All the way dating back to the time of John Smith in 1607, the English colonists have been hoping to find a water route all the way across the continent. And this is just another example of the Virginians and the English continuing to look for a waterway that does not exist. But one of the interesting things is no one knows why they can't find where Alexander, Alexander Spotswood and the Knights of the Golden Horseshoe um, made it there. And I think this is one of the funniest quotes. We drunk to the king's health in Champagne and fired a volley. The prince's health in Burgundy and fired a volley and all the rest of the royal family in claret and a volley. We drunk the governor's health and fired a volley. We had several sorts of liquors, namely Virginia red wine and white wine, Irish uskiba, brandy, shrub, two sorts of rum, champagne, canary, cherry punch, cider, water, etc." End quote. We're lucky they actually made it back to their starting point. <laughs> now, here comes what the Board of Trade has decided to do. One, they realized it's easy to get over the mountains. Two, they thought the French were five days away. Three, they were very concerned about hostile Indians in this area. The other thing they were very concerned about was slave uprisings and maroon settlements in the mountains. This is an issue that's beginning to happen in Jamaica. The solutions that they came up with is try to have forts near the mountain passes, settle the Piedmont, and peace and trade with the Indians. And one of this is the Treaty of Albany, which Alexander Spotswood goes to in 1722. And the Treaty of Albany is what, Mark? So the Treaty of Albany is going to be, at this point, the English colony of New York, trying to get all of the different colonial governments together to have something of a joint policy on dealing with the different Indian tribes that existed um, in the different colonies. It's going to be one of several attempts that is going to eventually lead to things like the Second Continental Congress. But one of the big outcomes of the treaty in Albany is going to be the purchase of land 
that New York, Pennsylvania, and Virginia are going to be making different purchases. Some of the area in the north is going to eventually be known as the Hampshire Grants. That's going to be something that we talk a little bit in our Obscure Conflicts podcast. The others are going to be trying to purchase the Ohio River Valley and the Valley of Virginia, the Shenandoah Valley. The different Indian groups from the Iroquois Confederacy are attempting to sell the land to the English. They think that they're only selling the Shenandoah, the Valley of Virginia. The English delegates believe that they are buying both valleys, which is going to lead to further conflict in the colonies throughout the rest of the 18th century. This will also be the treaty that will allow the English and the Iroquois Confederacy to help move, or in many cases forcibly move, the different Indian groups east of the Allegheny to the west. Now, other aspects of the Board of Trade reports is that how they settled the west, and this would be on all colonies, would be very different than how they had settled the Tidewater area. And what they're trying to do is not have huge plantations. They want to have smaller farmers, really. They want to have yeoman farmers who can then form small villages and then form militia groups, which would be the first wave of defense against the French and Indians. And basically, they also are recommending that all of the colonies appoint or from London appoint a Lord Lieutenant who speaks for all the colonies for defensive purposes. This does not happen but it's showing an imperial vision for the colonies. What starts to happen in Virginia, being pushed by the Board of Trade, is to open up what is eventually going to be Spotsylvania and Orange Counties. And in it, it was supposed to be smaller farmers. But Hugh Drysdale is writing, the lands in these counties, especially Spotsylvania, are parceled out and patented in a manner so inconsistent and directly opposite to their excellency commands that I'm a loss to reconcile them to the purport and design of their intentions. Hence it is in these lands which by the Lord's justice commands are limited to be granted in no greater quantities than 1,000 acres to any one person are parceled out and patented out in tracts of 10, 20, and 40,000 acres apiece to a few and little left to dispose of besides the most remote, barren, and unprofitable. Hence, it is that intention of the crown to make the county of Sponsylvania a well-inhabited frontier is frustrated. But Virginia kept pushing, and so when they decided to open up the Valley of Virginia in 1728, William Keith to the Board of Trade wrote about how they were going to settle it, person of a low degree in life who are known amongst their equals to be morally honest and industrious will sooner persuade a multiple into a voluntary expedition in this nature than those of greater wealth and higher rank who are even liable to the suspicion and jealousies of the vulgar. So basically, they are going to give the land grants to people of the Midland sorts of people in hopes of attracting more Midland sorts of people to come and settle. And that is pretty much what they did um, as they settled the Shenandoah Valley, and they were successful. The farms were mostly from 100 to 500 acres. Very few people have in more than 1,000 acres. And they did form militia groups, and they did act as the first wave of defense against the French. They were just off by about 30 years before all of this started to happen. This is not the last time that the Board of Trade and the Virginia colonies are going to butt heads. 
we'll undoubtedly have to revisit the issue as these different competing ideas will begin to play havoc during, say, the French and Indian War later in the century. Well, that is a very brief overview. Very, once again, where you seem to be all over the map, and I do apologize for that. And in the future, we're going to narrow our topics. But the 18th century seems to be a can of worms, and I have a funny feeling we will be doing multiple podcasts on the 18th century in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, make sure to follow along and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Banter Strings and Drinking Gourds can be found wherever podcasts are found. And if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please be sure to come visit the museum, especially on our upcoming Memorial Day event, which will be the entirety of Memorial Day weekend. So Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, ending May, we'll have quite a few different activities going on. So we hope to see you soon.